OMG, it's you. Welcome to episode 39 of Have a Blessed Gay, your spiritual comedy podcast. I am your holy host, Tyler Martin. I cleansed with sage, lit an intention candle, pulled a tarot card. I am feeling good, one with the spirit, and stoked for today's guest, y'all. And yeah, I know I say I'm excited for practically every guest, but I really am. I feel very fortunate to have the amazing guests that I have on the show. And this guy is definitely no exception. I am pumped. Today, I am sharing my conversation with the immensely talented Jonathan Parks Ramage. Jonathan is a Los Angeles-based novelist, screenwriter, and journalist. His debut novel, Yes, Daddy, was just released May 18th, and Amazon Studios is currently adapting the book for television. So freaking cool. His writing has been widely published in outlets like Vice, Slate, Out Magazine, Elle, and Medium. Jonathan and his screenwriting partner Marla Mendel recently sold their musical feature film screenplay, The Big Gay Jamboree, to Paramount Pictures. The duo has also sold television pilots to ABC and Pop TV. This is a creative doing the damn thing. He's been working his tush off for years, and it's amazing to see it paying off in quite incredible ways. A reason I was specifically so excited to have Jonathan on the podcast is because he is a writer that often lives at the intersections of LGBTQ plus issues, spirituality, and entertainment, which, as you are all well aware, is where I also love to camp out. So it energizes the shit out of me to see someone like him doing this incredible work. And he did not disappoint. We had a kick-ass conversation with some amazing quotes from him that I know you will love. And being that this episode focuses on queer writing, I thought it was a perfect time to shout out the wonderful Brad Shreve, the host of the Queer Writers of Crime podcast. I met Brad shortly after starting my podcast, and damn it, he is such a kind, giving, supportive person, and I really love what he's doing on his show. He interviews LGBTQ authors of mystery, suspense, and thriller novels. Plus, when you listen, you get weekly book recommendations from Justine. You know, Jonathan, today's guest, has managed to break so many barriers within the literary world and television world. And that's a major feat, because it's not easy for marginalized voices, books, and stories to be featured. So to have a dedicated space that uplifts and supports LGBTQ writers is just so badass. So please go give his podcast some love, have a listen, and if you're a reader, it's a great space to be introduced to new authors and books. And you can thank me later. Now, if you love this podcast, show us some love by subscribing, following, rating, and most importantly, leaving a review. Even if you don't listen through the podcast app on the iPhone, 
If you have an iPhone, the phone automatically comes with the podcast app. It's a little purple square, but you can also just search for the word podcast if you have no idea where the hell it is on your phone. <laughs> just find the show, scroll down, and write an honest, hopefully positive review on there. And yeah, it may sound silly because, well, it is, but reviews are really major for podcasts. So not only for mine, but any podcast you love and listen to, leave a review. It only takes a couple minutes and is greatly, greatly helpful. So if you do just have a couple minutes to spare, it would mean the world to me. Also, I am going to start reading the reviews you leave on the podcast. So if you want to share something funny, something personal, where you are on your spiritual journey, anything that you would like to hear, anything you would like to share, pop it in the review and I will read it on here. I cannot wait to read them. And of course, just sharing the podcast is super helpful as well. We are approaching Pride Month, y'all, so it feels like an especially wonderful time to share, uplift, and promote LGBTQ plus voices. So share away. And speaking of voices to uplift, let's go ahead and get ready for this inspiring discussion with Jonathan Parks Ramage. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp, the leading provider of online counseling. Y'all, the world is crazy and mental health is important. Some might even call it spiritual. I personally use BetterHelp myself and absolutely love what they're doing. BetterHelp makes professional counseling accessible, affordable, and convenient. So if you're struggling emotionally, battling anxiety, or you can't stop crying after an episode of Queer Eye, BetterHelp can be there for you anytime, anywhere. Go to my personal link at BetterHelp help.com slash bless gay to check it out and get what 10% off the best part is you don't even have to leave your house they offer four ways to speak with a licensed counselor video calls phone calls real-time chat and direct messaging all counselors have been qualified and certified by their state's professional board in other words, you're not talking to a lobster dressed in human clothes. They're legit. All you gotta do is go to my link at betterhelp.com slash gay and begin the questionnaire to match you with a therapist who is uniquely qualified to serve your needs. How sexy. It's super duper easy and you're matched within 24 hours or less. BetterHelp has a monthly subscription rather than paying per session, which makes it cheaper. But if finances are still a concern, financial aid is available for those who qualify. Get counseling, improve your life, and help this podcast out in the process by going to betterhelp.com slash gay. Sign up today and get 10% off. That's betterhelp.com slash gay. Uh, Jonathan Parks Ramage, welcome to Have a Blessed Gay. Thank you. I feel very blessed and gay to be here. Same. I don't know if it's just talking to you or if it's a butt plug up my ass right now, but I definitely <laughs> feel very blessed and very gay right now. <laughs> and I just want to get into it. Tell us who you are and what the hell you do. Uh, my name is Jonathan, as you just pointed out. And I am a novelist, a journalist, and screenwriter who lives in Los Angeles, California. 
Oh yeah, and also just that tiny thing of having your debut novel come out. Yes, Daddy, it was just released May 18th. Congratulations. Tell us about the book. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so this book is, as you said, my debut novel. It follows a young, uh, broke, aspiring playwright who is just waiting a shitty tables job to uh, try to make ends meet while he pursues his dream of becoming a playwright in New York City. And he eventually meets this much older, wealthy, famous writer, and he gets swept into this passionate affair uh, with this daddy, if you will. Um, and he thinks that this kind of rich older man is the answer to all of his problems. But then the older wealthy writer uh, winds up inviting the main character to his Hamptons compound for the summer, where he is uh, sucked into this very dark web of sexual abuse and assault. So she's a dark book, honey. <laughs> it's a thriller. <laughs> and it's already been picked up for television by Amazon Studios. Isn't that right? Yeah, and uh, Stephen Dunn, who um, did an amazing film called Closet Monster. Um, he also directed the queer episode of Little America on Apple TV, if you saw it. And he's actually um, currently show running the In the Works reboot of Queer as Folk. So he is going to be uh, kind of helming the adaptation uh, at Amazon, and I'm super pumped about that. <laughs> you could not ask for more. Yeah. Like, that is just incredible. Congratulations. Thank and, you. And even before it was released, <laughs> like, come on, who are you? I'm excited. I'm genuinely excited. And, and you know, I think what was really important to me was that, um, you know, we found queer people as a queer producer, uh, queer uh, showrunner, writer, uh, director, um, that there are queer people shepherding this queer story and really giving it the weight um, that it deserves. So I feel like it's in really good hands and I'm super excited about that. I really am too. That is just so cool. What inspired you to write the novel? A couple things. I mean, I really wanted to create a narrative that made space for queer people in our kind of national reckoning with sexual assault and the Me Too movement. When the Harvey Weinstein shit broke, obviously it was a huge kind of turning point in our culture, you know? And I think because of the nature of Harvey's victims, I think a lot of our first narratives around this centered cis gendered white heterosexual women and those stories are so important um but they're not the only stories and there are stories of queer people of people of color of disabled people i think if you live on the margins your story no matter what your story is is often pushed to the margins and so I think that for me, it was really important to have a queer narrative around sexual abuse and assault um, that centered queer people and kind of explored it from that queer perspective and kind of added or viewed the Me Too moment through um, 
a queer lens. Um, and I also wanted to explore, I mean, Jonah, the main character, his backstory also, he's the uh, son of a minister. Um, he grows up in the evangelical church. He goes through conversion therapy. Um, so there's a lot of spiritual trauma in his past. And I also kind of wanted to examine the ways that trauma can reverberate over our lifetime and the ways that the toxicity of the evangelical church can have sometimes a lifelong grip on people and and try to find and i and i wanted to also create a narrative that ultimately moved towards healing that examined the way that trauma can reverberate across a lifetime but also you know ended in a place of hope would you say that there are aspects of the character Jonah inspired by your own life? There are. I mean, loosely speaking. Yeah, very, very loosely. I mean, I, yes, I would say this book is a very personal book. I would say it is not autobiographical, it is fiction. But, you know, I have talked about this book with my therapist. Shout out to therapy. I recommend it for all human beings in this world 100 percent, and not when you're just in a bad place but even when you are feeling good exactly it is a it's a gymnasium for your psyche and your spirit and it's just good to get in those emotional workouts honey mm -hmm. but i think you know in talking with my therapist and i think i mean a lot of I don't want to get too into one-to-one -one comparisons of my life in this book. I don't know that that's helpful just because I want this book to be viewed as a work of fiction and not have people kind of sift through and be like, oh, who's Richard? And who's that? You know what I mean? I don't think that's helpful. Yeah, it lives outside of your life. Yeah, I think that the book, I think that the book works as its kind of own universe that I built. But that being said, it is very personal. I have... My father was a minister. I've been in, uh, really, I went through a period of life where I was in relationships with much older men, I think for the wrong reasons. Um, I think that I thought that those kind of daddy relationships would solve something, would be the answer to my career, to my whatever emotional shit I was dealing with. I thought that that someone could take care of me, but the answer is you have to take care of yourself. You got to be your own daddy, honey. Um. <laughs> oh, yes. Put um, that on a damn shirt. But, you know, I think that, that <laughs> a lot of what's explored in here are things that I have that have touched me personally. Um, and then I think that they're kind of all then filtered through the lens of fiction. And I mean, what I was actually talking about with my therapist is I feel like this book was almost like a way for me to work through how certain experiences in my life felt, if that makes sense, through a fictional lens. So I'm kind of conjuring this fictional, almost dream. It's like I'm dreaming wide awake. I feel like when I'm writing and I'm writing most effectively, I kind of tap into this almost dream state. And as we all know, our dreams are reflections of our own anxieties, our mm -hmm. own thoughts, our own psyches. So I, I feel like this book, writing this book was kind of like, you know, being in a sustained dream state and working through some personal issues that manifest themselves in ways that are more metaphoric than literal. Although there also are some literal parallels in the book of my life. But those are just for me and my therapist tonight. <laughs> <laughs> that is not for a little world, yeah. <laughs> well, there seems to be a really cool parallel between you and Jonah within 
the book, he's he's writing a play and using his reality to inform his writing, but he's also putting it in this fictionalized world and, and changing the narrative, maybe exploring some alternative desires he has, or just simply looking at this fictional character and asking, okay, what if this person were in my situation? What would they do? And I think that's so fascinating to learn that is what you also did as a writer writing the book. I think that's really, really cool. Something you don't shy away from in the book are the topics of religion and spirituality. They are throughout. And it's something we rarely see in queer literature, specifically in fiction, and specifically how you approach the subject matter. As a writer, why are you interested in those subjects? Not just one, but both of your parents were ministers, right? Um, yeah. Well, I grew up with, as you said, both of my parents were ministers. Um, they were not in the evangelical church. They were in a, a less kind of toxic manifestation of Christianity. Mm -hmm. However, you know, I came out when I was 13 years old. And thankfully, my parents were ultimately supportive and understanding. But at the time, we were living in a very conservative uh, small town in Massachusetts. And the church community was my family community. And we had discussions around whether at 13 years old, I should come out within the church. And the answer was no. Because I went to school, I went to a private school that was outside of the church community. And so um, my parents just thought that I shouldn't come out in the church. I think that they were concerned about me because I was 13 years old and they, would, they were concerned about conservative members of the church, though they were more liberal. A lot of these people were not. Mm -hmm. I think that they were also concerned about their jobs, you know, which I understand. They were trying to support a family. You know, if, if, if I as a 13 year old came out, what kind of repercussions could that have for my parents? I, I don't know. I mean, and, and that's the thing. So it was, so I was still closeted within this church environment and with my local community, um, with the people that I grew up with, I was closeted. I'd come out to my parents, but it was still this secret because, and look, I think that my parents, I don't fault my parents for that. I think that they were protecting me. They were protecting, I think, our family. But at that point, I had grown up in the church and my community was so based in the church. And then that kind of just stopped. And I think for a very long time, I just thought that church wasn't for me, that church wasn't for gay people, that it was just, that was it. Done. Uh, thank you. I'll be taking my check now. <laughs> so, yeah, I know. But of course, but that wasn't, it wasn't until much later in life where I started working with queer Christian activists who many of whom working in post evangelical circles, trying to help queer people recover from spiritual trauma and then also reclaim their spirituality. And that really resonated with me. And I wound up uh, joining this church, which again, many of the members were coming from an evangelical background. Um, it was post-evangelical, still is post-evangelical. So many queer people there, queer people on the ministry, women on the ministry, trans people on the ministry. Like it is just this inclusive, intersectional, social justice oriented, spiritual community 
And it was kind of like, I had this huge awakening. They were like, holy shit, like I can be queer and be spiritual. That, that those two things don't have to be at odds. And, you know, I think that what was important for me in this narrative is to paint a picture of someone who has been so traumatized spiritually, but also has a deep desire to continue to have some sort of spirituality in his life. And that rather than shut that off and just say, well, not for me because I'm gay, he can't because it's such a foundational part of his identity. His spirituality is such a huge part of how he views the world, how he how he goes through life. It's part of his psyche. And so it doesn't work to just shut that down. Why I wanted to end the book in a hopeful place is, is he winds up, not to give too much away, but he winds up finding a way to reclaim that and at least start on the journey of, of moving away from the toxicity of the evangelical church and into a place where he can be queer and have a spiritual life. And I think that's, it's, it's been interesting in the early response because we're recording this before it actually comes out. Um, but in the early reviews, early response, like I've, I've been seeing, it's been wonderful. And so many people have been so supportive and so welcoming, but it has been interesting. Some queer people are like, wow, I never thought about queerness and spirituality in this way. And some people really respond to that and say, oh, wow, I can really empathize with this person. And then some people still have those walls up, honey. Some queer people are like, I don't want to hear it. Like, I don't want to hear it. It's just like the word Christianity or the word spirituality is just a trigger, which, honey, I get. But, you know, I hope that this book can also push the needle a little bit and move beyond this binary thinking of queer people are over here, spirituality is over there, and never the two shall meet. That you can be fully actualized, fully queer, fully embodied human who also has a rich spiritual life that doesn't oppress you, that doesn't ask you to be someone who you're not. And so it was important for me to, to include that and kind of push against, you know, this idea that queer people and spirituality don't mix. Yeah. And even going deeper, the misconception that religion and spirituality are on the same side. We, we often see that they are not actually on the same side. Yeah. I mean, religion and spirituality together or separate there's just so much nuance there. Yeah. And I mean, I will say like, I mean, I don't even, I mean, I said I went to church, but I don't actually even necessarily identify as a Christian. Me too. Yeah. I attend this church because I think that the way that they interpret the Bible, which I think is a very powerful story and can be filled with very powerful metaphors. I'm, I, I'm energized by the way that they interpret the Bible and and translate it for you know the society that we're living in now i'm energized by the community i'm energized by the healing that's happening in the community i feel personally moved by that community i don't know if i really identify as a christian and also what i love about the community is that they don't ask me to say that i'm a christian and don't ask me or don't demand of me do you know what i mean that there's room for doubt yeah and i think that's really important as well Sorry, just had to do that sidebar. <laughs> no, no, I think that's terrific. And it's actually a wonderful lead-in to my next question. I read your awesome article for Medium titled Jesus, Mary, and Joe Jonas, 
my favorite Joe Bro, by the way, <laughs> who I have been in love so with awesome. since I was like 13. <laughs> I am burning up, burning up for you, Joe Jonas. <laughs> I think this article, though, speaks to your fascination, if you will, with religion and spirituality. Would you describe the article and what you went through to write it? Yeah, sure. So I kind of pitched this reported piece. I went in with this pitch basically being like, I'm going to go, I'm going to be embedded in this hipster, quote unquote, hipster evangelical church in Los Angeles, you know, white basketball sneakers, skinny jeans, hot pastor, like you get the picture. Coffee shop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yes, yes. Um, Celebrity. So Joe Jonas went there. I mean, you know what I mean? So, I mean, my my goal was like, oh, I'm going to go. I'm going to embed myself in this community and I'm going to like shine a light on all the ugliness and really give Mm -hmm. it to them. And that was kind of my intention going in. I mean, I also went in with an open mind, of course, as I do with all my, but, but in the back of my mind, I was like, I'm going to get them. Yeah. And that was not what happened. Um, <laughs> I, because of course, like you have these kind of like preconceived notions about like what an evangelical looks like or who they are. And then, you know, people are human and, and nuanced. So I was, went in kind of like wanting to do this expose. I did coordinate directly with the path of the church um he helped kind of facilitate he talked to me at length he helped facilitate meetings with other parishioners and it was a glimpse into the real toxicity of the evangelical church and the anti-queerness and the misogyny just toxicity of evangelical culture of people who tell you of so much sin tied up in sexuality, regardless of whether you're gay or straight. Um, Mm -hmm. You have so much judgment and shame and the fact that women can be leaders, queer people can be leaders. The fact that they are demanding that queer people be celibate in order to be a part of their community. I mean, there's so much shit there, but what was also interesting is that there was also this like beautiful on the surface, genuine community. People had come to this church. I met people who said that the church had saved their lives, whether they were coming from backgrounds, whether they were drug addicts, whether they were healing from family trauma. I mean, that that this church had saved people's lives. But I would argue ultimately in the end that none of that matters if your salvation is dependent upon the oppression of other people. Um, that that if you are part of a, a system, a religious system, a religious dogma that oppresses other people and oppresses yourself, that that is really bad and where people get really traumatized. But but for me, heading into that space, and I mean, I was in, I was working with them for like six months. Um, so honey, I went to small, I mean, there's a lot in that article that you don't even see. Like I went to small groups, like I was getting in there and it gets, it gets a little confusing when you're inside because you're also being like bombed with love from all these people. And like, it's like, we love you. We love you. You just can't have sex ever, but that's okay. Don't pay attention to that. We love you. And it's like, it's such a, it's such a mind fuck. And I don't think it's like of some purposeful evil cult leader mind fuck. I think that it's, it's this really misguided and toxic version of quote unquote love. These people who are trying to well, quote unquote welcome you into this community, but then force you to deny 
for example, your homosexuality. So that was a real like, woo, eye opener because I had this kind of partial spiritual awakening. And I was like, oh, but this is in a terrifying context. But I was like, something about this experience is resonating with me and, and kind of reaching back to my childhood growing up in the church. So what is that? And that's when I found my beautiful intersectional social justice oriented post-evangelical queer church community. I was like, oh, phew. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I can have both. I can have both. Yeah, exactly. But the, 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 there was this weird sort of awakening with me within that really toxic evangelical environment that I was like, I need to examine this, but I don't need to examine it in the context of the toxic and quite frankly, evil context of the evangelical church. There is a specific line in the article that was especially touching and heartbreaking. You're talking about how you were questioning the minister, yet at the same time, being just swept up in his warmth and charisma. You wrote, is it possible to like someone who thinks I am going to hell? Would you just talk about that sensation and the clusterfuck of emotions that I'm sure go along with that. Yeah. I mean, that sentence was in specific relation to Jeremy Treat, who I think is still the head pastor at Reality LA, this evangelical church. And I mean, I had hours and hours of conversations with him. I mean, he opened up about his family history. I opened up about my family history. He genuinely wanted to know. He genuinely wanted to listen. He genuinely was so good at engaging certain parts of my story and my history. And, and, and there was a lot of humility in the way he approached this interaction. It wasn't like, I'm a pastor and you're the parishioner. I was like, how can we two humans connect? But then another part of our conversation was about how gayness is a sin. And the only faithful option for queer people is celibacy, but that quote-unquote gay people are still welcome in the church. So it, it's that, it is, it's that mindfuck. It's like, oh, well, actually, like, I, I want to like you. I do like you. It's weird. Like, you, like, we're actually connecting. You seem like a great person, except for the fact that you have wildly fucked views about queerness. And I think that that is at the heart of why so many queer people get so trapped in this evangelical setting is because it is this weird mixture of love bombing and and hate and it's and it's much in the in, in the modern day manifestation of evangelicalism where now celibacy is presented as the faithful option and oftentimes presented and they're like come on in queer people we welcome you like that's a really fucking confusing message and i think purposefully so and it's so much more insidious than the Westboro Baptist Church, like who at least are fucking upfront with their fucking pickets that say God hates fags. You're not confused. Like you get it. You're like, oh, these people fucking hate me. They're fucking evil and not going anywhere near that. Whereas this modern kind of hipster evangelicalism has a, I think much more dangerous approach, which is, oh no, come on in. You're welcome here. We love you. You just have to completely deny a fundamental aspect of who you are. And as we both know, that leads to uh, 
depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation. It is really, really bad and, and creates spiritual trauma, which can take a lifetime to unpack and work through. I mean, to your initial question, I mean, yeah, it's like this mindfuck of like, oh, this person is really kind and talking to me and engaged with me. And I think I like them, but they think I'm going to hell. And that's a problem. <laughs> uh, just a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> now, here is a juicy question for you. Yes. From growing up with minister parents to doing the work with the article, now your book, and now being a part of a community that is uplifting and affirming words that we love to hear. What do you think of the word spirituality? <laughs> I know, I know, it's a big question. And you could answer it simply or as with much complexity as you wish. But the word just means something very different to everyone. And I would absolutely love to hear your take on it. Ooh, yeah, that is, I think that's a, that's a question that I've been thinking about a lot in general. Because as I said, I don't know that I necessarily identify as being a Christian, but I do feel like there is something being fed by my experience in this affirming, supportive, social justice-oriented community. And I think for me, it's, it's, it's about people connecting with humanity and connecting in a way with other people where we are at work to heal one another, to support one another. Um, and I think there's like a deep satisfaction and spiritual element to showing up for people and having them show up for you and being really engaged in a sort of mutual exchange of support and community. I think that that environment can create such a profound transformation in so many people to see what happens when when people really truly show up for each other and support each other and love each other uh, unconditionally and i think that kind of what's created by that community can change who you are fundamentally i think it has for me and so being in in support of a community of people that you're seeing on a day-to-day -day basis, while also then expanding the lens and saying, how can we not only change this community, but change the world? Does that make sense? I don't know, no, it's a hard thing to talk about. And I'm, I'm just thinking of this off the top of my head. So I think, I think that's what it means for me, but it, I think it's like, I think that's, it's also kind of an ever evolving question. But yeah, for me, I think it's, it comes down to people, how we are transforming each other, how, how that transformation or mutual support of each other is also transforming the world and how we can show up for one another. I think that's important. Well, I think that is a beautiful answer. Okay. I talk on here a lot about spiritual fluidity and you know your answer your your feelings about spirituality may change they may change in the next hour tomorrow next year and that's okay but something really cool that you brought up was people the people we surround ourselves with and that is something so many of us specifically in the queer community can relate to you know when i was young and so heavily involved in church 
I was also acting. And no, I didn't necessarily have the community that I wanted in the church, but I found that in theater. And I think so many of us do that, right? (laughs) We we gravitate toward these subsections, these, these groups on the outside, and we find our own version of church and our own version of that community that can be a major part of spirituality. I, yeah, I, I really loved your answer. Yeah, it's like a spiritual fluidity thing. Like if your version of, of community and deep connection and support and love and that, if that's going to brunch with <laughs> your best squirrel friends, honey, praise them. Good yeah. job, <laughs> But that, but that is okay to acknowledge that there's a spiritual life, regardless of how it's how it's fulfilled. Um, I think is important. Yeah, a major theme in the book, something you actually mentioned earlier, is trauma and how people might process their trauma. A quote from the book that I absolutely loved: "Trauma is a gift, the shittiest fucking gift in the world." But the minute you receive it, it becomes yours. And it's your responsibility what you do with it. And you can use it as an excuse to destroy your life and destroy the lives of people around you. But you shouldn't. I love that line so much. It's a super thought-provoking line, a super thought-provoking book surrounding trauma, surrounding religion, spirituality, career, relationships. Is there anything you hope people leave with after reading it? So glad that you, that that got a post-it because that is kind of, I think, one of the key moments in the book. And I wanted to choose a metaphor. It's not a curse. It's not a wound. It's not just something that happens to you, but it's something that you receive and that becomes yours. Like it or not, you know, that trauma is something that you have to deal with and process. And if you don't, you know, like I said, it's like it can manifest itself in really toxic ways and ways that can hurt other people that can lead you to hurt yourself. Um, So it's not like something just happens to you. And like, sometimes I think our impulse when we go through something traumatic is to just shut the door, pretend that never happened. But then, you know, if you don't own, I guess, your trauma in a way, and it sucks that you have to fucking do it. But if you don't deal with that, it will bubble up in other ways. And I mean, that's why I made, you know, the infomercial for therapy at the top of this, but I do think that therapy is so important. Um, whether it's one-on-one with a therapist, whether it's a group therapist, whether it's your pastor, I mean, somehow at least starting on that to understanding and grappling with the trauma that we have endured, I think is so important because otherwise they manifest themselves in scary ways. Um, And I think that that's part of my narrator's journey in this book is he deals his trauma in really imperfect ways. Um, And I think that's kind of part of the challenge of the book is saying, oh, like this is someone who has endured so much trauma, but then he's also acted in harmful ways to others as a result of the trauma he's experienced. And I think that's the complexity. And that's also his journey of trying to find forgiveness and and trying to piece through the ways in which that, you know, his denial of his trauma has caused him to act out in ways which are, which have harmed others. Um, So I I wanted to kind of sit in that place of of complexity. 
with the book, but also, you know, ultimately moving towards a story of, of healing and not that it just like, oh, everything's fine at the end, but like that, you know, what you were talking about, like therapy is a lifelong journey, um, you know, that, that it's like, oh, like I realize that I'm going to have to show up for myself in this way. I'm going to have to show up for um, myself by going to therapy, by examining kind of what I've been through and the ways it's manifested in my life and how I want to maybe change or not change what's how I'm moving through the world. Yeah. And I think it's really important that Jonah is not a perfect character. I feel like a lot of writers and people in general fall into the trap of perceiving victims as good people or innocent or perfect, but no one is perfect. And you make it very clear that Jonah is not perfect and his downfalls do cause other people trauma. And it's just this ripple effect. And that's real life. I, I think that's so amazing to see a victim represented in this way in the queer community in a realistic way. And I I just, I really thank you for that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, that means so much. And, and like you're saying, like I, I did, the idea of the perfect victim is such a toxic idea and one that is so damaging to victims everywhere, you know, and it's still one. It's still, you know, you see it in uh, as recently as Harvey Weinstein's trial. You see defense lawyers for these people try to attack someone's character as if having a flawed character makes you deserving of sexual assault or abuse. And, and yet it's, it's despite everything that's happened, it is still regularly used as a quote unquote defense in the quote-unquote criminal justice system and it's the fact that that just this defense is still used and can even still be successful which is why the criminal justice system fails victims of sexual assault and rape so regularly um, so consistently no perfect victims and and queer people aren't perfect victims either and i think that you know sometimes there is a, a tendency when it comes to representation we want our queer people characters to be perfect so no one can attack us as queer people and I while I understand that I also think that there is enough representation now that we can move into more nuanced representations of queer people and I think it is more powerful to have a more nuanced representation of someone who is queer and who is moving through the world as a flawed human because that's how we move through the world and I think we're doing more for ourselves as queer people um, being represented if we show those flaws because otherwise you know, it is, makes it so easy for someone to dismiss someone who is queer just because they're not quote unquote perfect. Well, not to go too far off on this branch, but I mean, as a kid, especially growing up in the church and being in a family of ministers, eyes were on me as I'm sure they were you. And I know so many queer people who felt like they had to try to make up for being queer, try to seem perfect in every other aspect of their life. And that's definitely something I can relate to being an overachiever. So being queer would be less of a letdown for everyone. And I just think it's so, so needed to know that perfection is not real. And actually the concept is really problematic. Yes, I agree. Totally. Well, Jonathan, let the people know where can they find you, your incredible book, and keep up <laughs> with all your wonderful work. Um, yeah, well, the book is available for sale 
anywhere the books are sold. You can order it from your local indie bookseller, which I always love, uh, bookshop.org. Um, yeah, anywhere books are sold, you can get a copy of Yes, Daddy. Um, and you can find me on Instagram. And my handle is at JP Rampage, which is a pun on my last name, Ramage, um, as if I'm going on a rampage. Um. Oh my gosh, you're so clever. Uh, yeah. Are you a writer? Oh my God, <laughs> It's like one of those things where you like choose it like before Instagram was ever a thing. I'm like, yeah, this sounds good. And now it's just my handle. I'm like, well, yeah, JP Rampage. Here we go. <laughs> oh, well, there it is. <laughs> Well, Jonathan, thank you so, so much for being with us today. I really enjoy talking with you. Oh, thank you. This has been so wonderful. Damn it, I love him. There are so many amazing things to take away from that conversation, right? Here are my main takeaways. Number one, you gotta be your own daddy, honey. Number two, if your salvation is dependent on the oppression of other people, something is very wrong with that. Number three, being quote-unquote welcomed while simultaneously told you're lesser than or going to hell will fuck a person up. Seek uplifting and affirming communities. Have a listen to episode 21 if you want to hear more on this topic. Number four, there are no perfect victims because there are no perfect people. This ideology is so toxic and incredibly hurtful. Number five, trauma is the shittiest fucking gift in the world. But once we have it, it is ours, and it is our responsibility to stop the ripple. Number six, therapy is so important. And no, I'm not just saying that because I'm sponsored by BetterHelp. I promise, I truly mean it. Whether you go through my link at BetterHelp or you go to somewhere else, definitely consider therapy. But obviously, if you are interested in BetterHelp, well, you might as well just use my code and get 10% off. BetterHelp.com slash blessed gay. And the link is also in the show notes. I hope you enjoyed this discussion. Jonathan's info is in the show notes. Check them out. As always, feel free to reach out to me. I love hearing from you. But listen, if you are struggling specifically with trauma and you need help right here, right now, I always post helplines in the show notes. So please do check them out if you need to. And just remember this, you are special, you are purposeful, and you are fucking beautiful. Have a blessed day, y'all.